Thank you for joining us in Season 2 of the Religion Podcast, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Hey, Joel. Howdy, Rabbi Sabbatical. It's been a while. I miss you. <laughs> Why? Where have you been? Well, in one week, I uh, I did a wedding for a former congregant from my previous congregation in Omaha, in Cleveland. That was a lot of geography there, but uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. And then the day after that, we took a very short family vacation with our 14-month-old. For the first time he left the house, we spent uh, two and a half days in Charleston. And then the day after that, uh, I saw Fish, the band, not the animal. <laughs> Uh, in Alpharetta and drove back and forth so I could be home and, and do things at home. So it's been it's been a crazy week, a good week. Nice. Uh, and I managed to get a little bit of writing in on that week, but not not as much as, as the previous the previous few. Well, so you took me. your COVID you? baby out into the COVID world. <laughs> God forbid COVID baby. Take that back. Puh, puh, puh. <laughs> we only you know what though? It was it was difficult because even though we were on vacation and it was wonderful, uh, we didn't. The only place that we went to that was indoors was our hotel, and uh, Charleston's a difficult place in the end of July when it didn't get below ninety degrees. Um, right. Thankfully, lots of restaurants have outdoor seating and there's shade, but it's still ninety degrees. Uh, but that's definitely a first world problem. But um, you know, and the South we, is notoriously less vaccinated and less careful uh, around others than many other uh, areas of the world. So I imagine that Charleston was embodying this uh, tail end, hopeful tail end of a pandemic differently. Yes. Yes. What about you? What's going on? Um, yeah, here we go. Uh, we're getting ready for fall. Uh, I don't know about y'all, but for us, when school starts back, church starts back. It's kind of weird. It's not that we ever stop, but the feel around a congregational family uh, bumps forward uh, around August to Labor Day. So we are trying to make sure we have all of our worship plans and adult group plans and children and youth plans all ready for September through December. And trying to communicate those and make sure volunteers are in place. And it's behind the scenes. I mean, it, if you're out in front, it looks like very less than normal is happening. But if you're behind the curtain, it looks quite frantic. Yeah, I, I totally understood. And uh, and you're now starting your second year, right? I came uh, for February 2020, right? So I am I am about halfway into my second year. Been here about a year and a half. Been here about as long as Aaron's been alive. So uh, <laughs> we can we could keep those two timed off one another. Very nice. Well, what do you want to talk about today? Well, we promised them at our last episode two weeks ago that we would talk about the fairness of God, why God is or isn't fair, and why God is or isn't just, and what it looks like when God is fair or isn't to uh, those of us who try to worship and follow God or don't. So uh, what does it look like for God the judge to be uh, a fair judge versus not so fair in the minds of some of God's followers or even in some of God's worshipers today, and dadgummit, even in some of the stories of Scripture. 
I think this applies to every topic that we're talking about this season and certainly retroactively to the six or seven we've already done, but I don't think that we've named it, which is what God is or isn't is not necessarily the same as how God is depicted in scripture. I don't limit my belief or non-belief in different attributes of God solely based on scripture. And so, you know, we're, the point of, of us delving through these difficult texts is that they are in Scripture, but I wouldn't want someone listening who's developing a theology, which quite frankly should be all of us, regardless of age or, or experience, to, to think that, that Scripture is the only framework by which uh, to imagine or contemplate God. Yay, thanks. That's, yeah, I I try to remind my folks of that all the time. Whoever, whatever, however God is, and whatever this God wants from the world or each of us individually, we know that God best. If you're a Christian, you know that God best through the um, incarnated human Jesus, whom we call the Christ. And we know that God and Jesus best through the scriptures when we read those scriptures in context and with the help of Holy Spirit. So there's this long uh, trail of if, 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 then maybe our assumptions about God are getting closer to accurate. Jill's brother happens to be visiting us this week, her older brother, and he gave us a piece of art one time, and I, I love it. It's hanging in our living room. There's a man and there's a bird sitting on his head. And in his hand, he's holding this sheet of paper that tries to explain how to fold paper into an origami bird. Meanwhile, a real bird is sitting on his head. And then the subtitle under this pen and ink drawing is theology. (laughs) In other words, our best attempt to describe with words how to create an origami bird can never point to the living being that is a bird. And that's the metaphor for what we're going to be doing today as we talk about the God who is or isn't just. Will you text me a picture of that? Of course. Yes. I, I, I might use that. that that's phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, let, let's talk about the fairness of equity of God. I, there is... Uh, I may have mentioned this before, but in the Kabbalistic tradition, which is the Jewish, you know, some people know Kabbalah because, you know, Madonna claimed to be into Kabbalah for a while and and a few other kind of famous people. But um, Kabbalah started uh, in the northern area of Israel uh, a few hundred years ago as an effort to bring a more sense of spirituality and relevance to various rituals and prayers and things like that. And one of the things that came out of this movement was, I don't want to say a new creation story, but a different creation story where God, uh, and I'm not going to go so far down this, this tangent, but where God constricted God's self so that God's essence, I think about it like a concentrated orange juice, that God's power was so concentrated into these 10 vessels that these vessels broke And our job as human beings in partnership with God is to repair these vessels. 
And those vessels correspond to 10 different attributes of God. And I'll put a link in the show notes that they're drawn out in this interesting diagram of circles that all kind of link to one another. Some mathematicians are, are into this kind of stuff sometimes. And two of them, two of these attributes of God that broke that we are now in charge of fixing are the attributes of justice, of deen, which is the Hebrew, on one side, and chesed, of compassion, on the other. And these two are meant to balance one another, that God is meant to be just, like a completely impartial judge that meets out justice, whether that be kind or punishing, but also chesed, of compassion. And of course, for anyone... You don't have to be a parent. You just have to be a human being that, that's dealt with other human beings. You, you, too much of one and not enough the, of the other is problematic. And having that exact balance is difficult, if not impossible. But that is God's task. Uh, I'm not sure that God always does that, certainly in Scripture. But Judaism certainly presents that balance as very important. I love that. The, uh, I had a theology professor, and, and sometimes in Christian theology, we'll use these interesting Celtic or ancient symbols that have a, a three to them, uh, some kind of triune symbol for God the Creator, God the Redeemer, God the Sustainer, or God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, he suggested to us in our theology class that we think of God as an ellipse. An ellipse is a, you know an egg shape. And uh, where a center, a circle, has one center. An ellipse, when you stretch a circle out, flatten it out some, like a football, it really has two foci, fo- um, focal points. And, and God said the, the ellipse of God has two centers, love and justice, um, or loving kindness and just mercy. Uh, he would stretch them to be like that, to expand them. And whatever God is, is always reacting to both of those centers. It is inside the envelope that those centers define. And those two centers bend one another to close the boundary of who God is and how God operate, operates. And without them, you'd have a perfect, without one of them, you'd have a perfect circle. Without the other, you'd have a different perfect circle. But God is not an overlap of two circles. God is an ellipse that always encompasses both, that always pull and hold each other accountable, love and justice. And and I'm I'm still grateful for that mental image um, because there are moments where I sense and I hear my people ask me for the love of God. Oh, please, just preach to us about the love of God. And there are seasons in the church or in the world where we as clergy have to remind them God is love. God is loving. God is about compassion and, and mercy. Then there are times where we as clergy have to also show our people God is a bringer of justice, a sword of justice, a demander of justice, a prophet of justice, and uh, expects us to listen and go and do likewise. One idea that Judaism gives with regard to the creation of Adam and Eve 
is that since we are all created from Adam and Eve, we're all held to the same standard. And so we're all, we're all, we all have the same justice, so to speak. And that, that's one of those things similar to what we talked about last week. It sounds beautiful and wonderful and equitable, but that's not really, not only is that, of course, not the way the world works, unfortunately, but I'm not even sure that's how God works within scripture. Um, you know, even in the very beginning of Genesis, I mean, there's a few examples with Abraham. I'll share two briefly. Is One is very shortly after Abraham, Avram at the time, uh, starts his journey. This is before God makes the covenant with him when his name is changed to Avraham. Um, but he travels with his wife, wife Sarai, soon to be Sarah, and um, King Abimelech, uh, takes a little fancy to Sarah. And Abraham tells him, for whatever reasons, that she's his sister and not the truth, which is that she's his wife. And so he basically hits on her, right? It's like, you know, it's like when you were single and you'd ask your buddy, hey, are, are you into her? And, and they say, no, go for it, you know? So uh, Abimelech ostensibly doesn't do anything wrong by kind of, you know, trying to, trying to make a move, so to speak, with Sarah. And God is not pleased and almost punishes him with death. And, and Abimelech is basically like, dude, I was told his, she, she was his sister. And ultimately, he's forgiven. But, but it, it, it does show that God's priority, as it were, or allegiance is to Abraham. Um, and this kind of thing plays out all of the time when, when when we call ourselves the chosen people, I mean, what does that mean? And it's a very problematic concept for exactly this reason. Does that mean that we we get, so to speak, something that other people don't just because we're Jews? And that includes, of course, someone who converts to Judaism, but nonetheless, still um, problematic. There was one. Oh, the other the other thing with Abraham. This one's quicker. Is when Abraham command, sorry, when God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, God actually says, your only son, the one that you love, as if Ishmael doesn't matter, because Abraham, as we both know, has two sons. And of course, our tradition kind of uh, does some intellectual gymnastics by that of saying, well, Abraham loved Isaac more, and God's reminding him of that to make it that much more painful for Abraham to obey God. Um, we don't have the space to talk about that now, but uh, it, it again, it, it, where's the justice for Ishmael? And again, dozens and dozens of examples like that. In our modern world, like truth and justice are strange topics, um, and I find that there are people who come to religion or faith hoping that there is still some truth, hoping that there is still some hope for justice. Um, and when our members who hear texts like that about a God who, God, let Abraham lie about his wife, and the the impact of that lie was almost zero on Abram, but very high downstream on Abimelech, well, and on Sarah, uh, why isn't the liar in that situation the punished one by the God who says thou shalt not lie? Why did the lie like survive and the downstream victims of that lie get punished by God? It really makes God look like God doesn't give a damn 
about truth or about justice if we read the scriptures the way they're written about this God. Agree. Agree. And and that is a unpleasant and difficult thing for people to grapple with. And I think that, you know, I, I think that deserves to be mentioned also that we want, I think there's a default assumption that the scriptures are, if not perfect, certainly um, inspirational in all ways and good and full of meaning and, uh, and not filled with this kind of tension that gives us a little bit of ickiness or perhaps a lot of ickiness. Well, that story about Abram, Sarai, Abimelech, those can reveal a truth to us. And that scripture story about those three and what happened and how it happened, we need to mine it for its truth, justice, compassion. But the way that the scriptures tell that story and um, allocate to God certain judgments or behaviors, we don't have to hear those literally the way that the authors of Scripture wrote them about God. We can debate with the authors of Scripture who the God behind Abram, Sarai, Abimelech really is. Now, the authors of Scripture— For sure. Yeah, the authors of Scripture said, ooh, I bet it was like this, and that story got written down with their bet. But we get to place our bet as well in a different place based off of the other stories of Scripture that they didn't have access to. When the author wrote that story down, they didn't have all the other stories of this God that we do. So we're at an advantage over the authors of Scripture now. You don't like that. That one's bothering you. No, I'm thinking about that. I think that's true. Dramatic pause. I, I continue to, that's the only way I can survive reading scripture. And when I get somebody who comes to me and is a literalist and they like, well, it says this about God. So I have to first say, remember, God is somebody bigger than we can ever understand or write down. The God that we know, we know best in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, who embodied and interpreted scripture himself. So whenever we are interpreting scripture, remember, look for the God behind it not for the God that's pinned or pinned down in it. And then second, remember every bit and piece and letter and verse of Scripture was written at a time and a space by a person who had a much more limited picture of God than we now are gifted with in the width and breadth of all Scripture. So the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. Go somewhere else in the stories of God and find another story, image, metaphor for God that might argue with Scripture itself. And if so, then you're okay to question it because Scripture itself would question itself on that point. Yeah, I like that. That's in some ways easier perhaps for you, not only because you can go to a specific person in your belief system, um, but because for Jews, God wrote the Torah. And so therefore it says something differently about how and if it can be interpreted. We say that too. You know, we say God breathed the scriptures into being, that God's spirit was with every hand and every story and every the, the choices of which stories made it and which stories didn't and how they were edited and knit together and and how they became 
you know, the whole of what they are. God had a, a hand in that process. Just because God had a hand in the process doesn't mean that every piece and little bit and verse and image of God in it is accurate by itself. Oh, I agree with you. I, I mean, I, and I think you know that. I, I um, as a matter of fact, m- much of what I'm writing on my sabbatical encompasses, well, it doesn't encompass this, but it falls into this whole idea of uh, our relationship with God should not be, not only is it okay for it not to be what the relationship of our ancestors was, but it should not be because we have 2,000 years on them. We have life, of experience, of of hopeful social and uh, justice gains and things like that. So the image of God that Jesus sometimes gives us is equally unfair and unjust, and it makes the world very upset with him for some of the stories he tells. For example, there's this story he tells about um, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the, you know, God's great community. Um, looks like this: a a farm owner goes out to hire some help in the morning, and says, "Come on, get in the truck. <laughs> Let's go back to the farm. I'm going to pay. Promise to pay you a full day's wage." And they do. Um, then he comes back to the market and finds more workers who need something to do. And he says, well, come on. And at mid-morning, they come back to the farm. At midday, he does it again. In the middle of the afternoon, he does it again. At the end of the workday, but before the sun has set, he goes back to the market, finds more workers who still need something to do. And he says, come on back. I'll pay you a fair wage. And they work all the way to sunset. At sunset, he tells his manager to line them up in reverse order. The ones who got there last will be paid first. And he gives them, even though they only worked from end of workday to sunset, he gives them a full day's wage. And then the people who work from late afternoon to the end of the day get a full day's wage. Socialism. And the next thing you know, the ones who worked a half a day or most of the day or all the day are mad. And they say, hey, now all of this is in Jesus's parable, right? And they say to the farm owner, you're not being fair. You're not being just. We worked a whole day's wage, and yet they didn't. And yet you paid them the same as you paid us. And and God's response in that metaphor is, did I treat you unfairly? Did you work a full day's wage? Yeah, a full day. Yes. Did you get a full day's wage for your work? Yes. Is there anything unfair about that? And of course, they can't say there is. There's nothing unfair about that. And he goes, my generosity to others isn't unfair to you. And and he, that's Jesus's parable for what the community of God will and does look like when we embody it. So much of the way we attack communities like that is we think whatever the benefit or pay is has to be equal to the effort we put in, as opposed to a sign and symbol of God's compassion. And if if we could get over that, we might be able to understand God's justice doesn't always look like the way we want it to. Mm. It's a really hard thing to to, uh, emulate. Maybe that's why it's God's kingdom. (laughs) 
I mean, really, I mean, I, I found myself in that position of, of thinking of being that farm worker, right? That's worked the whole day and then seeing other people. Now, I'm not talking about and I could see where an argument could be made for social programs where, well, wh- why is this person being getting a handout when I've worked my whole life or, or something like that? That's not what I'm talking about. I, I'm talking about just the comparing yourself to someone in a similar situation uh, that is getting more than you or equal to you and not putting in the effort. I mean, it makes one want, want to put in less effort. Um, that, that it's, a, it's a wonderful challenge. It's kind of the Christian curse, though. Uh, Christians, universally, are always comparing ourselves with other Christians to make sure that we're in the top half of all Christians, whatever that is, <laughs> right? That our work. Do only are, 50% go to heaven? Well, like maybe, there's a quota yeah. Of- yeah. There, there's this strange number, and it's 144,000. And you know what 12 means. 12 is a big number, right, in, right. Uh, in the world. So it's 12 times 12 times 1,000. So it, that there's something about that that means a lot. But um, who knows? But uh, Christians are always comparing, well, at least I'm better than him. At least I'm better than them. Well, my beliefs sure. or my works are at least better than and what Jesus kind of does is, in God's justice, it has nothing to do with whether we are ahead or behind one another in our holiness and our faith and our justice. It has everything to do whether we are working together to accomplish the same wholeness of community. So it, maybe you are a little individually ahead and they're a little individually behind. That doesn't mean you have an advantage in your aheadness. It means you have more responsibility in your aheadness to those who are lagging. And if you find some way to use your aheadness to, to create wholeness, great, because the wholeness is the measure, not the well, individual. And that's the, and that's on a practical level or not practical, but uh, just timely level. That's the argument why I think we believe that people who are more wealthy should have a higher tax liability for that exact reason. If we could go uh, uh, one other place with this, uh, there's a Hebrew phrase I'm going to teach you all, tzeduk hadin. So I used the word din before in contrast to chesed. Din means justice. And tzeduk hadin is a rabbinic phrase. It roughly translates to the justice of God, but that's not what it means. It's really the... um, it's us rationalizing God's actions in order to make them just when they may not have been. So I'll give a, an example, and then what I just said will make sense retroactively. Uh, in the Torah, uh, Aaron's two sons, Nadiv and Avihu, go to the altar with uh, what the Torah says is strange fire. And what, what that's understood to mean is that they weren't commanded to do this offering that they were about to do. Um, you know, we in Judaism, we have commandments and they weren't commanded to do this. And they did this thing that they weren't commanded to do. Maybe they got it wrong. Maybe they said a word wrong. Maybe they brought the wrong kind of incense or, or got, you know, the order of a formula wrong. Whatever it was, God strikes them dead. This is in the Torah. This is not a Midrash or it, um, I'll provide uh, the verses in the show notes. Um, And commentators 
go completely haywire justifying God's actions so that they are just or so that they seem just. And so one example of this is this idea that Nadiv and Avihu were trying to usurp the authority of Moses and their father Aaron by going to the altar. And therefore it was uh, it was a Hilul Hashem. It was a, 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 a um, an affront to God. Okay, and th- there's all sorts of, of readings like that. But that is an example of Sidu Kadin, of seeing something that happens in, usually it's in a textual um, source. So in the Torah, in the Talmud, and then reframing it so that God's action seems just in that reframing. Yeah, and we call it eisegesis, right, in seminaries or whatever. <laughs> you start with what you want to be true, God is just, and then you read the text and you force upon that text some wacky, stretchy interpretation in order to make it bend towards the truth you started with, as opposed exactly. to reading the text and then asking of it without all the assumptions you know, in advance, what is it really saying? And what is it not saying? And what is it? What questions does it have us asking? And do we find another text somewhere that helps us respond to it? Um, and and I said Jesus is the great danger of any preacher worth their salt. And I would say so. I'll I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit. In that I think I Jesus is also necessary. But there is a. I actually I, I have a whole few thousand words on exegesis versus eisegesis in my in my writings thus far because we can't help but do that there's no such thing as pure objectivity of course um but 100 it can absolutely be dangerous and um and it's bad for religion it's sometimes bad for people that seek out religion when they're when they're told you know what a pastor or rabbi believe as opposed to what the text might or might not say mm-hmm. but that's a that's a whole nother rabbit hole, um, but it's where our it, it's where our unjust versus just versus um, dangerously just God conversations uh, have forks in the road. If if a preacher is doing I said Jesus because they can't help but do it, we all bring to our our text readings our own in, uh, assumptions and and histories, and we're not aware of that then we're imposing on others not just Scripture's misunderstanding of God or our personal misunderstandings of God. We're forcing that onto others as opposed to helping the other person, the listeners, really read the raw text and yep. wonder, is what about this raw text does point to God despite the the misunderstandings of the authors and their time and context, despite the misunderstandings and assumptions of my preacher today and all of his or her uh, junk that they're carrying around. Um, what can I find from this text that really helps me see the love and justice of God today? Now, I will say one thing about Jewish law regarding justice is that it is incredibly concerned with justice between a person and their fellow neighbor, friend, stranger. And um, to say it pleases me, I, I, I don't know, you know, but, but it does give me a, a good feeling about my tradition that 
even as there are aspects of Scripture where God is not necessarily just, God is always concerned with the justice of others. And, you know, in, in the book of Leviticus, when, when God tells Moses all the rules for the priests, I mean, there, there are all of these wonderful themes that we still use with regard to judges and the court system today about impartiality and not playing favorites and the rich shouldn't have a leg up on the poor simply because they can afford, you know, better things, which of course is naive to think that that is not what happens in modern society, but at least we have that ideal and we strive for it. Um, and t- for me, God's justice is how we treat fellow human beings. It's not part of it. It is that. And when, you know, the great command to love God and love your neighbor, that love implies justice, right? Because yes. the, the characteristics of God are both. And when, when we chant at protest, no justice, no peace, what we're saying is without the love and justice, not just between us and God or God to us, but between each other, we'll never have the shalom, the community, the the communal camaraderie that God intends for us. Now you're using one of my words, but you did it so beautifully. I can't, uh, I can't be upset at the appropriation. <laughs> when, Kidding, of course. Yeah. When you talk about, um, when we talk about here, the fairness of God. For Christians, and I doubt a lot of Christians really think about this, but I do, dang it. Um, and maybe some do, and I, yeah, I don't know. The great unfairness of God is that Jesus died. If, if I really want to judge God's justice and fairness, um, the only reason Jesus died is because God's other precious creation, humanity, heard God's word and God's will um, and saw God's word and God's will embodied in one of its own and hated it so much that we'd rather kill the God we say we love and worship than to follow and obey. And, And then Christians have jumped through, you'll have to help me with the Hebrew um, term again, um, to Nick Dean. Tzidduk Hadin. Yes. Tzidduk Hadin. So it comes from the word which you might know, Joel, tzedek, which means righteous. Righteousness. righteousness. Yes. So Tzidduk Hadin. Right. And my middle son, Daniel, right? Um, He's obviously totally aware that God is judged forever. Um, the this in this situation, God's judgment of the brokenness of humanity needing some solution was to send God's own self, God's own son, into the midst of a dangerous mob of humanity who did not welcome and love God's presence in its fullness, but we split 50-50, and some welcomed and were baptized and believed, and others hated and killed. Now, he rose again, so you could say, hey, the punishment wasn't that bad. Um, But the torture he went through in his crucifixion and death uh, doesn't strike me as a just way to confront injustice. 
um, surely there was some other way God could have imagined to prevent the embodiment of evil that humanity was doing. But that's not how it went down. Um, and I've had people justify God's actions. Well, God knew that about us, and so God did this, and God planned it all out, and God was with Jesus all the way, and you know they justify it like that. But the truth is, God didn't kill Jesus. We did. So I don't judge God for Jesus' death. I judge us um, and our verdict and our rejection of him. And we sing this weird song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Um and how it sometimes makes me tremble to realize, I, dang it, I was there. And it's on me, not on God. Um, but if, if for those who read the Scripture a little more literally, I think they will face a very unjust God when they look at the life and death of Jesus. Well, Joel, next week we have another uh, lovely, easy, and fun topic that's also full of Sidhu Kadin, um, namely obedience of God. And uh, as I've been teasing for a few weeks, uh, the, the prime example of this, I think, uh, for me in Judaism and Jewish scripture is Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. And mm. I think we're going to get into that. Um, what about from a Christian perspective as a, as a little teaser? Yeah, and, and well, if this week we've been focused on God's justice, what does our justice look like? When we're obedient to God, it's supposed to look just. But we've seen so much Christian, quote, obedience um, empower the Crusades, right? Or empower colonial invasion of healthy, independent countries around the world. So uh, how far do Christians take this obedience to God? And sometimes we take it so far that it doesn't look very godly. So if you want to have a, uh, a comforting beverage in, in one hand while the other hand has a, uh, the heaviness of, of theological discourse, maybe there's a balance there. Here we come. It'll be great. <laughs> uh, have a great week, everyone. And Joel, I hope uh, I talk to you soon. Yeah, until next time, keep it real. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realreligionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.